Welcome to the Co-Mission Podcast, a place to hear talks, teaching, and conversations from across the Co-Mission Network. At this year's Co-Mission Women's Morning, Helen Thorne, Director of Training and Mentorship at London City Mission, spoke on the topic, Speaking Words of Hope. Her first session looked at Ephesians 4 in a talk entitled, Communities That Care. Well, it wasn't meant to be this way. We were never designed to be facing the things that we face right now. Our friends weren't meant to be going through their trials. We weren't meant to have hearts that were breaking. If you rewind the time to Genesis 1 and 2, you can see how life was supposed to be for God's people. A perfect relationship with the one who'd made them. Never any doubts about who he was. Complete confidence that he was going to provide for their every need. A beautiful relationship where there had to be no hiding. A relationship where you could talk to God unhindered day by day. A relationship with the Lord where they knew beyond any shadow of doubt that he was God and he was good. Relationships with the people around us weren't meant to be like this either. Back in Genesis 1 and 2, a husband and wife that didn't argue. A family that never got torn apart. People that loved each other without strings attached. No fighting, no brawling, no lying, no insensitivity. We were meant to be in a perfect relationship with the world around us too. No sickness, no death, no natural disasters causing carnage. That's the perfect place. That's as it's supposed to be. And one day, it'll be like that. It won't always be like it is now. We won't be a group of people sitting in Dundonald Church with half of us having our hearts breaking and the other half of us worried about the person sitting next to us. There will come a time where we will be a perfect church. We'll all be rejoicing. We'll all be so healed. We'll be so confident. No tears. No fallouts. No heartbreaks. No disease. No death. A perfect church is what lies ahead. But for now, for this Saturday, for the foreseeable future, we're not a perfect church. We are nothing but a messy church. We've been a messy church since Genesis 3. That moment when Adam and Eve decided to eat the forbidden fruit, to live life their own way rather than God's, to give in to temptation and for sin to mar the world. From then on, there's been physical pain. There's been emotional pain. There's been spiritual pain. There's been relational pain. And that is so real to us, isn't it? There isn't anybody in this room who doesn't feel the burn of that in their own hearts, I'm sure. There isn't a person in this room that doesn't have someone they love who's going through a tough time right now. I was thinking about my friends, those facing cancer, those in hospital for a heart operation, those whose limbs just don't work like they used to anymore, those whose health is failing because of age. Those struggling with depression and anxiety, those with mental health problems, those wrestling with doubts, 
Those wondering if God can ever really help them in the situation they're in. Those who read the Bible and the words just feel cold to them. Those whose marriages are on the rocks. Those of us who are estranged from brothers or sisters or friends. Those who dread going into work every day because of that colleague who we know will cause pain again that day. It's a mess. And if you've arrived here this morning thinking your life or your church is a mess, then yes, you're in good company. It's how it is for so many. But the legacy of Genesis 3 doesn't just lie in the fact that we're messy. The legacy of Genesis 3 lies in the fact that we're people that try and hide our mess as well. It happened to Adam and Eve. They disobeyed God. They took the fruit. They ate it. They shared it. They knew it was wrong. They could at that point have gone straight to the Lord and said, sorry. They could have gone back to him and said, we've messed up. What should we do next? But they didn't. They hid. They didn't want people to see. They didn't want God to see their mess. They wanted to pretend everything was okay. They didn't want to get found out. And so often that's the same in our messy churches too, isn't it? We don't want people to see how much we're falling apart. We want to hold back the tears. We want to pretend everything's okay. I know what it's like on a Sunday morning. I do the equivalent of going to my wardrobe. And as I pick out my jeans, I try and find my superwoman outfit too. I want the cape. I want to come into church thinking I'm a victorious Christian. I've persevered over everything that I've faced this week. I'm joyful in the Lord, even though my life is falling apart. And all too often I'm not, because it just hurts too much. We hide our mess in different ways. Sometimes it's the way we use our words. It's the miracle of the church car park that happens every Sunday morning. We leave the house in various states of distress or anger or grumpiness. Maybe we've been shrieking at the children Maybe husbands and wives are no longer talking to each other and you're coming to church separately that day. Maybe you've left the kitchen looking like a cross between Hiroshima and uh, the latest earthquake. Maybe one of your family is still in bed because all the coercion, the prayer, the pleading, the threats, nothing actually managed to launch them from the sheets that morning. You're feeling like an utter failure dejected, alone, suspecting that you are the only person in the whole church that's had a morning like that. And then you get to the church doors. Someone on the welcome team says, hi, good morning, how are you? And you instantly say, (laughs) it's not true, is it? We like to hide. We don't want our brothers and sisters in Christ to see what's really going on. And it just doesn't stop there, does it? How many of us choose our makeup and our clothes to make us look just that little bit more confident, just that little bit more energized, just that little bit more control than maybe we actually are? I'm not knocking nice clothes. I'm certainly not knocking wearing makeup. Go for it if you want to. But if it's a mask, if it's covering up how we really are, 
Well, that just adds to the mess of our church. It stops people seeing how we truly are. Well, how do we respond to this messiness in our churches? Well, I think we've got three options. One is we can deny the mess. We can look around and go, actually, you all look quite nice. You look fairly calm. None of you are crying at the moment. Most of you have smiled at least once this morning. You're looking fairly together. No one forgot to get dressed. No one's turned up in their pajamas. Maybe we're all right. Maybe this is all just a little bit dramatic. We can jog along together. It'll be fine. Option two is to outsource. If someone's having a problem within the church, we can refer them on to somebody outside the church. Somebody who can give them the specialist help that they need. Now, sometimes we do need a specialist. But we can get into that habit of going, it's not a church thing. That's a kind of a a pastoral thing. So maybe if the pastor's got time to do it, or you've got a a counsellor within the church, they can do it. Or we could have a crack pastoral team within the church, and they can just go round with their capes on, and they can solve all the pastoral problems within the church. Or option three is that we can become a community of people who care. A community of people who are so passionate about loving one another, spurring one another on, getting alongside one another, knowing one another, pointing each other to Jesus, being confident in God's word. That real change happens as we walk alongside each other. Hope is brought into darkness. Change is brought into situations that feel intractable. And real life maturity begins to flow. Now, if you want option one or two, in fairness, you're probably in the wrong place uh, this morning. Uh, Hopefully you won't actually just walk out now. That would be a little embarrassing. Uh, But uh, we're going to be focusing much more on option three. And before we go into the details of how that might happen, I'd just like you to catch a glimpse of a vision of an image that it might just look like. Imagine your church as a place where you are known by the people who love you. Not the intimate details of every aspect of your life known by every member of the congregation, but you can walk into that church knowing that there is a group of people who know exactly how you're doing right now. And you can be absolutely confident that those people are praying for you. And you can be absolutely confident that they're going to get alongside you and bring scripture to bear on your life. And you can be absolutely confident that they are going to persevere alongside you for as long as it takes. And you can be absolutely confident that as the ups and downs of life continue, they will help you to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Not to take the pain away, not to fix it, but to enable you to trust God to do his work in your life. Imagine being in a church where you know that whatever your gifts are, whatever your maturity as a Christian, however long you've been doing this, you have a role to play in helping someone who's hurting. You know beyond any shadow of doubt that your gifts, your ministry, your life has value within the body of the church. You know that as you pray for people, as you open scripture with people, whether that's in a big way or in a tiny way, that lives will be changing. 
that your church is a little hub of encouragement, but you know that each time you go there, yes, you might be challenged and that might hurt, but it will be good to be spurred on to be more like Jesus. And then on even the darkest of days, you are surrounded by people that are going to speak words of hope. Does that sound like a good place to be? I mean, our churches are partly that already. I'm not suggesting that we don't embody any of that. We do. But to become more like that, more confident in the Lord, more able to turn to him, more open, safe environments where change and hope just flows. Well, is that a pipe dream? Is that just Helen sort of having read a little bit of the Bible and got slightly carried away with the commentaries and thinking, well, wouldn't that be nice? Do we have to wait for heaven for that? Could that really happen on earth? Well, we have to wait for heaven, the new heavens and the new earth for perfection. We're never going to get it completely right here on earth. But this isn't a pipe dream. This is what Ephesians 4 calls living the life worthy of our calling. This is what we are designed to be. So that image that I've just set before you isn't some fantasy. It is what we are becoming in reality. The question is, are we going to go for it or are we going to fight it? Well, if we're going to do it, we need to go through Ephesians 4 because this is what gives us uh, the real foundational stuff to help us grapple with becoming communities that care. And the first thing we need to note is that we need to do this together. Caring for others is not a lone ranger opportunity. It is something that we are designed to do completely and utterly together. One of the things I, I love doing uh, when I've got the time is going to watch them dance. Uh, I love ballet. I used to do ballet when I was younger. I love going up to Covent Garden, uh, the Royal Opera House, seeing some ballet there. I, I like street dance too. That comes with working at London City Mission. I'm surrounded by hip-hop artists uh, day in, day out. Uh, and uh, I love watching them as well. But one thing I've noticed as I've been going to Covent Garden uh, and other places is the way that the team there work together in perfect unity. You know, as I go to Covent Garden, I've seen outstanding ballerinas and I've seen little children from the Royal Ballet uh, just starting out on their dancing career. They're not all brilliant yet. I've seen uh, men and women, old and young. I've seen contemporary dance and I've seen very traditional old dance. The variety of the people and what they do is immense. I've seen the people cleaning up afterwards, people selling the programmes and the drinks. I've seen people hoovering. I've seen people backstage looking after the scenery. But it's all united. One purpose, one goal, seamless harmony. What I've never seen at the Covent Garden is a ballerina wander onto stage 10 minutes late in her jeans, going, yeah, tutu wasn't really my thing today. I didn't want to wear it. What I've never seen is the cleaner start the hoovering in the middle of Act 2. Yeah, well, I kind of needed to get it home early to do the lunch today, so I thought I'd just get on with my work. I've never seen the corps de ballet six people short because they wanted a lie-in that day. Nor have I ever seen a beautiful pas de deux between a man and a woman where one of them's just gone, I'm not dancing with her today. Do you know what she said to me earlier? Nothing gets in the way of their harmony. 
Nothing gets in the way of their unity. They are a troop. They are a, a cast. They are a beautiful, beautiful oneness. The trouble is at church, we can be a little more individualistic at times. There can be that temptation to stay in bed because, quite frankly, we're tired. There can be that temptation to want to use our gifts in the ways that bring us pleasure rather than going with the direction of the church. There can be that temptation to just not want to go do things the way the church is going. To be lone rangers rather than people that work together. Well, that is not what we're designed to be. We, in this church, as Christians, are a unity. As it says from verse 4 of chapter 4, there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. See, we're not individual people. We are one body designed to be together. God has made us united. And we're supposed to live up to that calling of unity. You see, we, we have the one heavenly father. We're sisters, literally sisters in Christ. We have a one faith. We all believe we're saved by Jesus. We have one hope. We know that the gospel is our hope and we're heading for eternal bliss. We have one spirit inside us. We together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We can't split up and expect things to work. Part of being a caring community is being a united community. Not trying to create a false unity, but living up to the real unity that already exists within us. Being women together who love to pull in the same direction. I am useless at sports. I often wonder if Dundonald is quite the right church for me because everyone just seems to be so sporty. We have running clubs, we have frisbee clubs, uh, we have cycling. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, Pilates, I can't get out of bed without pulling a muscle. But I did try rowing once. It was a disaster. Largely because I went in a different direction to everybody else. I don't know why I was doing the same thing as everybody. But clearly one arm is a lot stronger than the other. And I just kept going around in a sort of vague circle in backwards while everyone else was going forwards. Don't be like that in a church. All in the same direction. If we want to be a caring community, linking arms, eyes fixed on Jesus together, committed to unity is the best place to start. And the good news in verse two is you don't have to like each other to do it. I hope you do like each other. But if worse comes to the worst, don't worry about that bit. Because Paul here has given us a very clear instruction to be patient with one another and to bear with one another. And quite frankly, you only have to be patient with somebody that's doing something stupid. And you only have to bear with somebody that's doing something irritating. It's kind of built into the plan that our unity of being a community of care presupposes that we are going to, at times, drive each other completely crackers. And that's okay. That doesn't distract us from caring for one another. That's just part of the deal. So what do we do? What's the plan? Well, if we want to be these communities that are really caring for one another, the first step 
is to commit ourselves to maturing together. And we're going to look at verses 7 to 13 for that. They're very complicated, uh, these verses. If you're wondering what this this grace is uh, that uh, is being talked about here, uh, don't think salvation grace. Think more about the grace that's been given so we have gifts to serve one another in the church. Uh, If you want to understand more about that, uh, Richard Cokin's commentary on Ephesians uh, is on the bookstore. I've stolen half of my talk from there. It seemed like a safe thing to do since he's head of commission. What we do is commit ourselves to maturing together. Now, you see, we're all gifted. There isn't a single person in this room that doesn't have gifts that are given by God. And they are all essential for building one another up. You see, if we're to really understand what it is to spur one another on in the tough times, we have to be willing to use those gifts to encourage one another, to teach one another, to keep going. And there's a bit of a cascade effect in the Bible. We see this in Ephesians, we see it in Colossians as well. That there are some people to be prophets and evangelists, shepherds and teachers. They kind of have the big teaching role. They're the people that are going to be standing up on Sunday mornings, teaching us week by week, going through the Bible passage by passage, helping us to understand the whole counsel of God. So we get the big stuff. But then you have the people that help you apply it a bit more week by week. Maybe the small group leaders in your church. They're the people with whom you can sit and ask questions, the people with whom you can come and do a bit of application, the people with whom you can pray stuff through, the people with whom you just make sure you've got the nuance of the passage right, because quite frankly, you fell asleep a little bit in the sermon on Sunday, and you just want to check it out. But, but it doesn't stop there. It's not just about listening to the sermons and going along to small groups, good those those things are. It's about speaking intentionally to one another as well. It's about us speaking the truth in love so that we are to grow up in every way in him who is the head into Christ. That's verse 15. You see, as, as, as the pastors do the big stuff from the front and the small group leaders do the medium-sized stuff midweek, we are designed to be people who teach each other in the very specifics of our lives to understand and apply God's word. So if you've got a friend who's hurting at the moment and you haven't got a clue where to start in terms of what to say to them, start with the last sermon you heard. Because I guarantee that it will have contained something that will encourage, challenge, comfort, or spur them on. So imagine this. You've heard a wonderful sermon. We were in Philippians 1 here in Dundonald last Sunday. And we were talking about you know, the wonder of peace at one point uh, in the sermon. It was great. I went home thinking, yeah, peace is a good thing. Thank you, Lord. Midweek, if I'd gone to my small group, uh, we would have talked a little more about what it means uh, to be peaceful, have real peace with God. But how can I tell that to my friends? How can I be the person that says, well, what has the peace of God got to do with your situation right now? How does that very real peace that you've been given impact your parenting? How does it impact your exam stress? How does it impact your unemployment? How does it impact your ill health? How does it impact your exhaustion? We take those things in any way we can and help our sisters apply them to our lives. We can meet up over coffee. 
We can text each other. We can WhatsApp each other. We can Facebook each other. We can tweet each other. If the worst comes to the worst, we can get out a pen and we can write a note to each other. It's old school, I know, but it works. How can we each week take what we've been learning and apply it to our lives? You see, we don't do those things naturally. Maybe we should, but in my experience, I certainly don't. I am one of these people. I can go to church on a Sunday morning and I always hear a fantastic sermon and I can go, yes, the grace of God uh, is so wonderful to be forgiven. And then usually after the sermon has finished, we have a, a short prayer and then we go into a song which is helping me to sing out, I am forgiven. Lord, thank you for your grace. This is such a wonderful privilege. My heart is singing praises. I might even go for the occasional conservative evangelical sway as I'm singing just to really get into the mood. But as I get home, I sit there and go, oh, Helen, you idiot. I can't believe you did that. Still haunted by things I did a year ago, 10 years ago, 20s. I can remember what assignments I didn't hand in when I was an undergraduate. And occasionally I still think, why was I such an idiot back then? And believe me, that's just a tip of the iceberg when the silly things I've done. And I can torture myself about the fact that I'm guilty. And I'm some way unworthy to, to talk to the Lord. And then rather than going to God in prayer thankful for my grace, I go into this pity party, this absolute spiral. I become the spiritual equivalent of a hippo, sitting in the mud and the mess, wallowing and refusing to get out. And in my head, I'm sitting there going, it was like an hour and a half ago that you were hearing about grace. How can you not have got it? But my heart doesn't. Which is why I need my friends and you need your friends in the church to go, Helen, are you being a hippo again? Are you wallowing? Come on, what what did they say this morning from the front? Go back and look at Philippians 1 again. Did did you remember? Did did you believe what the pastor was saying? Why, Why isn't it landing? Let's talk about why it's not landing right now. Can I pray for you? Can I pray that you'll begin to believe it and the truth of that will sink in? Now, maybe you might be here sitting thinking, well, maybe the person's doing a bit better than that. Maybe actually they don't have these spiritual struggles. Maybe they're all sorted. They're not. None of us are in all of our aspects. Some of us are doing better than others. Some of us have better days than others. But don't be scared about going, how are you going? How are you really going at applying what you heard this morning to your heart? Do you really get that God is that big? Do you really get that God is that loving? Do you really get that God is that full of grace? Do you really get that God is that faithful and steadfast? Do you really get that the ending's going to be good? Have you really grasped the fact that no matter what you're going through now, no matter what you're going to go through next year, no matter what the ups and downs of the rest of your life might be, the ending is fantastic. Have you really got that? And is it sinking in? That's what maturing together looks like. Not just turning up on a Sunday, that's a good thing to do. Not just turning up midweek, though that's a good thing to do as well. 
but talking to each other, reinforcing these truths so that we're constantly turning to the Lord and his truths and letting them sink in. But it's not just about maturing together. In verses 17 to 24, it's about changing together too. My old boss uh, has three children, and when they were very, very little, uh, they had a Barbie mirror. Uh, It is the pinkest thing ever designed by man. It was a pink mirror um, with a pink surround with pink flowers, and it had pink buttons uh, and uh, pink lights, uh, and you could use a pink brush and a pink comb to brush your hair uh, whilst looking in this mirror. And as you uh, brushed your hair with your pink comb and you pressed your pink button, it would say things like, you're gorgeous. (laughs) You're lovely. You're perfect just the way you are. You know what, though? The world would have us believe that sometimes. The world would genuinely love us to believe that. It would love us to believe that everything else that's going on in our life is somebody else's fault. And you know what? Just occasionally, we buy into it too. Just a couple of weeks ago, I found myself saying uh, in the office, it would be absolutely fine to get this project finished if only that person would start pulling their weight. Now, of course, sometimes there's an element of truth in that. Uh, But... We're too quick to see the problems in other people. Maybe we're too slow sometimes, some of us at least, to see the problems in us. Or maybe we can see the problems in us, but we don't want other people to see it. It's back to that hiding bit again. But we're called to be people that change together. Yes, that affirm one another. Yes, that encourage one another. Church isn't sort of a mass therapy session where we're all bearing our ills and sharing our biggest fears, but it is the context in which we're meant to be changing. And I think we know that, don't we? If you've been a Christian any length of time, can you look back and see how you've changed? Can you look back and see the wonderful way in which God has worked in your life? You know, I can look back and I just get astonished at what the Lord has done. I mean, if you rewind the clock to 1989, nobody, nobody in their right minds would think I would do anything vaguely pastoral. I was the church mess. I was the one that everyone was pastoring and quite frankly, not with much hope in their heart. I was the one that spent the first 10 years of my Christian life going in and out of rehab programs because I couldn't get it together. I was the one that people constantly had on the prayer list for the church prayer meeting. Now, I'm not perfect. I'm not sorted. I am very messed up in many ways still. But that change, that big change, is exciting. And there are other changes that are even more exciting. My boss, not so long ago, said, Helen, you are so calm. I'm thinking, no, I'm not. I'm not even vaguely calm. I'm sort of like a headless chicken on some kind of drug, constantly panicking and wandering around thinking the world is going to end. And then I thought about it and I thought, oh no, actually I was 
the headless chicken, constantly thinking the world was about to end. God's enabled me to be relatively calm these days. How's God worked in you? What can you see? Are you a bit more patient? Do your arguments with your spouse come a little less often? Are you able to see love for those people that you didn't used to like? Are you able to be more patient, more gentle, more calm? Are you able to pray more quickly? Are you able to turn to scripture for hope more quickly? It's not a competition. We don't have to compare and see who's changed the most, but are you changing? Can you see God's work in your life? Well, if you can, can you also see it in the people around you? Can you see that person who came to church 10 years ago and is now doing wonderful things? Maybe they didn't used to be able to do an area of service and now they can. I'll let you into a little secret. I have never, ever been scared to stand up in front of a group of people and give a talk. I am utterly terrified of the Dundonald dishwasher. (laughs) Somebody in a a fit of of panic after an event, when they realised that everything was getting slightly out of control in the kitchen and they knew I was in full-time ministry, they quite innocently said, Helen, can you just run the dishwasher for me? I cried. I have no spatial awareness. I couldn't work out where the plates were going to go. I couldn't find the on button. I dropped stuff. It was carnage in the kitchen. Gloriously, one of the elders of the church later on that week gave me a one-to-one tutorial for half an hour (laughs) on how to run the dishwasher. It doesn't have to be the big impressive stuff that we're changing in. It's the little stuff too. But do we want to be that community? We're going to look at the process of change in our second talk. But do we want to be those people who are spurring each other onto real change, not hiding our problems, but being vulnerable to them so that we can encourage one another to live for Christ? Can we model what it is to change? You know, if we want to be communities that care, the thing is not for us to be the strong people who can help. The thing is for us to be the vulnerable people who are willing to receive help. Because if we can model what it is to receive grace, if we can model what it is to receive the help of others, then we will show those who are struggling how to act in a godly way. We don't need our capes. We need to be on our knees saying, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner too, and I'm struggling as well. Well, we're going to look later at how we're going to take off our old self, be renewed and put on our new self. But finally, we don't just need to be people who are committed to being together, committed to maturing together, committed to changing together. We need to be people that are committed to sharing our lives in practical ways together. And that means the basics uh, that we see in verses 25 to 32 about being willing to speak the truth to one another. Not speak the truth because I want you to know exactly how I feel about you right now and I'm going to unleash. Not that kind of aspect. But willing to tell people what is true. That might be telling people, you need to know that God is not abandoning you in this. It might be that you need to be saying, but God has forgiven you. He is full of grace. 
You know, all too often when we hear that grace, we think Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, except mine. He can't possibly have died for mine. I'm too bad. I'm too messed up. The truth is he did die for you. Nothing can separate you from his love. Of course, sometimes it might be more uncomfortable truth too. Are we committed to be people that will say that? You know, that scenario at the end of a bit of a conflict and someone's telling you about the argument they've just had. You said, I know, I probably shouldn't have said it quite like that, but they really deserved it. You agree, don't you? And you sit there going, "Uh uh-huh. Well, we can be compassionate. and say, that sounds really hard. We can be empathetic going, you know what, I don't think I would have handled that situation any better than you. But sometimes we need to say, but you know what, that was wrong. How can we repent in that together? I'm not better than you. I've got stuff I need to repent of too. How can we both repent together today? How can we both put right what we've done wrong? Are we willing to be people that speak those words of truth? Are we willing to encourage people, be spiritual cheerleaders to those in the darkest of times? Not in a trite way going, it's going to be fine, but in a real way going, I'm going to walk alongside you in the muck and the mess of this. And I know it's going to be hard, but I'm not going anywhere. And more importantly, nor is the Lord. So let's keep walking alongside each other. Let's keep linking arms. If we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, his spirit is at work in us. We can keep going. Let's do this. Let's trust him. Are we willing to be people who are able to do that for others? Are we willing to be people who will allow others to do that for us? Are we willing to be generous? To ensure that that everyone's got everything they need, as it tells us in this passage. In our churches, in our small groups, are we willing to stand alongside the person whose money has run out? I mean, yes, occasionally putting in some, maybe some debt management strategies and some financial planning to make sure it doesn't happen again. But in those times of need, are we willing to offer that practical help? Are we willing to be people to go round and clean up somebody else's house? Are we willing to let someone else clean up ours? Are we willing to let people see the mess of us? I uh, was working alongside somebody recently, a very dear friend, who was going through a tough time. And she said, it's all right for you, Helen. You've got it all together. The trouble is, all she ever saw of Helen was Helen on a Sunday or Helen when she was at a conference. She never really saw Helen. So I invited her around to my house one day and I didn't clean up afterwards. Before, sorry. (laughs) 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 Or afterwards, for that matter. The cushions were still covered in cat hair. The post was still all over the table. The dirty washing up hadn't made it from the sink to the dishwasher because the dishwasher was still full of the stuff that was dirty from the day before. My oven is not sparkling like it is in the ads. And she came round and she looked at my house. And I was both simultaneously utterly thrilled and crushed to bits when she looked me in the eye and said, Helen, you live like this and you still feel good about yourself. (laughs) 
profoundly humbling. (laughs) But she got the point. It's the relationship with Jesus that provides our identity, not the fact that we've got life together on a practical way. Are we willing to let people see that and to see the, where our words, where the words of the Bible ring true? Are we willing to forgive those family members who drive us nuts every single day and keep on forgiving because the Lord forgave us? A community of care. Is that what you would want? Does that sound alluring? Does that sound beautiful? Does that sound full of hope? Well, if it does, rest assured, it is what we are called to. It is what we are designed to be, and it is beautiful beyond measure. It is what honours the Lord. It is what is good for us. It's what's good for our unbelieving friends, because as they look on that community, they will be bowled over by what they see. And they will ask questions. You know, I don't have many non-Christian friends that say, please tell me how I can have my sins atoned for. Nor do I have uh, many non-Christian friends that say, I would love to know what the new heavens and the new earth are like. Can you explain predestination to me? I have loads of friends who are struggling with depression. I have loads of non-Christian friends whose marriages are falling apart. I have loads of non-Christian friends who are struggling with singleness. I have loads of non-Christian friends who are caring for elderly relatives. I have loads of non-Christian friends who find parenting hard, whose hearts are breaking with bereavement, with any kind of stress or strain. And what I love to be able to show them is, yes, the truth of the gospel, but also how that works out in life so that they know beyond any shadow of doubt that this God who we are following has something to say in every aspect of our being. Let's live life worthy of our calling and let's commit ourselves to not stopping. Thanks for listening to the Commission podcast. Find out more about upcoming Commission events at commission.org slash events. Next week, we hear the second part of Richard Coken's conversation with Desiring God founder, John Piper.